It's all broken, Dave. It's all broken. Yep. We can't have nice things. We can't. Mm-hmm. We're not allowed to have nice things. Everything is broken mm-hmm. all over the place. So Spotify is broken. I was playing with Spotify, you might remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Spotify broke themselves, actually. So Spotify, if I want to use Spotify on a laptop, that's fine with them. If I want to use it on my mobile phone, that's cool with them. If I want to send Spotify to some of my home entertainment equipment, uh, that is not fine with them. Um, they mm. would like money from. They want money from me for that. Um, I need to mm. buy some Spotify equipped amplifiers or blo- or boxes or something um, in order to uh, listen to Spotify uh, in my own living room. Um, and so uh, I told Spotify to go pound sand, and uh, wow. instead I switched over to Google Music, um, mm-hmm. which, if anybody was wondering, is basically an identical service for an identical amount of money, um, except they let me use my Chromecast. So mm. uh, done. So yeah, so done. Done. Sold. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, how are you doing? I am uh, covered in fur. Uh, okay. Is that a by preference or? <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't shaved all week. Um, <laughs> no, no. I. Uh, so the uh, remember we had the the kitten and the two mm-hmm. guinea pigs. Um, mm-hmm. So the the people we were watching them for they came back from vacation and uh, they took them and in exchange I gave us two more kittens. Um, so we were, so for those keeping score at home, um, so it's, uh, we have a guinea pig, we got a kitten and two more guinea pigs. We gave the kitten and two guinea pigs back. And now we have two kittens and, uh, Fibonacci, the guinea pig. This is not going in, in a good direction, Dave. Um, I mean, in a week's time, let's see if I'm doing my math right, you're going to have four kittens and two guinea pigs. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna work with Lauren. We'll do an equation to we'll plot this out and fit <laughs> fit a curve. And but it, like these two kittens, um, Zach and Jesse, um, they're brother and sister, and they're like crazy affectionate. Like they they got here when I was gone traveling this week, and I I took a break uh, this afternoon. It's like oh, I haven't even seen them yet, and um, <clears throat> so I, I go in to play with them and just to see how they're doing. And as soon as I go in there, they're like all over me like wanting me to pick him up and <laughs> and one was pushing the other one out of the way to it's like no no i'm the one getting petted and and the other one <laughs> come push the other one out of the way and it, it it's just amazing it's too bad i'm i'm allergic to cats but uh it's sad yeah. that it really is too bad yeah yeah so then um but over the weekend um so i'm shopping on black friday and i i uh get a, a text from my wife that says well hey can you buy some cat soup Hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, um, she probably just, you know, a typo or whatever, pick up catnip. And I'm like, okay, uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll do that. So I go to the grocery store and, uh, and I, I go to get, uh, some catnip and I, I don't know. I'm, I like never took an illegal drug in my life or anything like that. And it, I, I just felt so, I felt like I was doing a drug deal, you know, buying the catnip. Uh-huh. And and uh, you know so it's I, I almost felt like I needed like a trench coat or something like that to go and and sunglasses in the in the grocery store and, and I was gonna uh, say what made it what made it feel illicit for you was it were you buying it from like a dude in a trench coat on the street or like were you buying it out of a car on a street corner or like what was <laughs> no no this is a grocery store it it well it was like a a bag of of green stuff that it it just like it it looks illegal I don't know and mm-hmm. and then the other part of it is it. You're you're getting a, an animal stoned, you know. So it's <laughs> it's like a double whammy too. That it's not just for like a, a, a human, but you're you're like you know 
uh, I don't know, it's like giving a dog beer or something. I don't know. So I, I get home and then I give it to my wife and, and she's like, no, I wanted cat sip, not catnip. And I'm like, so like cat, what? A, a cat, cat sip is a real thing. And I guess it's a special kind of milk for, for like, uh, like, I don't know if it's like a baby formula for cats or something like that, but it's a special, uh... yeah, cat sip. So I and and so we we haven't even tried it on on the cats the catnip or the catsip for that matter, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah I I just felt really uh, awkward uh, doing that. Cats that seems that seems that seems like a that's a branding failure right if uh, if 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 the, if the word for it is so close to such a well recognized word for what is almost the same anyway yeah that seems yeah weird. or or maybe they did it on purpose but just it's confusing. Um, but yeah, you know, as as you saw, uh, but uh, but in the meantime, I'm like the, like these two white cats. I'm like like covered in like white fur all over me, and <laughs> and so I I kind of look like the the the, uh, the the bumble from the uh, the the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. You know the mm-hmm. uh, abominable snowman. I, I look just like that. <laughs> Pick of the week. Click. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Yeah, and then did you see uh, the the new thing with uh, Marriott um, and Hilton that they're announcing um, uh, penalties for last minute cancellations? Yeah, this is a complete outrage. This is just mm-hmm. this is just this is nonsense. Um, for those of you who don't travel as much as Dave and I do, the whole th- like one of the wonderful things about both hotels uh, and car rentals, for that matter, is that um, you can cancel your reservations. Uh, I think usually 24 hours in advance and, and often even less uh, with almost no consequences, um, mm-hmm. which is really handy for planning if you you know if your schedule is uncertain and, and things like that. Or, or um, your flight gets canceled. Or your flight gets canceled. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now this shakedown. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And and they uh, so Hilton they they went on record saying uh, we're making this change to provide you with more consistent uh, a more consistent booking process and to make rooms available when you need last-minute travel accommodations. So I guess they're doing it for us. This should be a felony, is when a company does something like this and tries to frame it as, like, doing you a favor. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, because oh, no, there are customers calling up on their, their customer support line saying, I wish we had penalty fees. Right, right, exactly, right. They're they're suggestion boxes just overflowing (laughs) with, yeah. By by charging you for carry-on luggage, we're actually lowering the price of your ticket. It's like, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. no, you're not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. But they would make, they would, I think they would make a lot from it, because there's a stat here from, in 2013, uh, domestic airlines earned $2.81 billion from cancellation penalty fees. Um, up sharply, uh, for, so five years ago is 1.67 billion wow. in uh, 2008. So I think the hotels are seeing it, they want to get in on that action. Oh, and I see here that they're also they're also saying that we are canceling more often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they and so I guess part of this is to discourage us from doing that because it screws up their planning and and whatever else. It's our, yeah, it's our fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wonder too, like, what if I wonder? I I got to see. I got to check out see what it looks like in writing but i wonder if you have status with them if they would waive it because to me i would be less likely because that's one of the things i like to do it's like i know that if i have something coming up i'm going to jump on reserving the room right away Mm -hmm. um 
And I would think that would provide them with a greater degree of predictability and all that. And and if it's a case where I have cancellation fees, um, I'm going to be much more gun shy. And it's going to be stressful for me too, right? Because I'm, it's like, all right, I'll wait until I'm absolutely certain that it's going to go. Um, and then I'll book all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it's not cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not cool. And, and you're right, they're, they're cutting themselves off from a valuable demand signal, right? Yep. Um, yeah, how they want to staff or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This will not end well. Um, man, the hotel industry is broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we're going to focus on this week. Not the hotel industry, but just everything's broken, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, social media, yeah. Bitcoin. Yeah, passwords. Forge.mil's broken. Maker culture, that's broken. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't wait to talk about that. Anyway, yeah. I think folks get the idea. Um, so if folks want to get a complete catalog of everything that's broken this week, Dave, where should yes. go? Yeah, so if you want a nice little pick-me-up, um, you want to go to uh, HTTPS, dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, and for some levity on the cutting room floor this week, uh, mm-hmm. we got some we got remixes. We got a whole bunch of remixes. We got uh, Lakshmi Singh from NPR mashed up on some dubstep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got uh, album covers rendered in Lego, which are pretty sweet. Um, and Dave, you found this uh, great writers in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how they would write, how Shakespeare would write. Um, JavaScript. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, I, my favorite is the Hemingway. <laughs> um, we, he got the result and it was not good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, the, and also uh, from Parker Higgins over at uh, EFF, he's got this groundbreaking plan for nine factor authentication. Yep. That's just uh, like, mm-hmm. yeah, which is like catnip for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yup. Um, so Dave, with this hotel stuff, uh, I suspect both you and I will both be video conferencing a lot more often. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's now, now they're building it into uh, Firefox. Yeah. Yeah. So the, we've talked on the show before about WebRTC, this uh, open standard for doing kind of audio visual peer to peer communication. Um, Firefox has definitely been like a leader in the implementation of this. I, I, I assume Chrome is in there, up in there somewhere as well. But uh, Firefox packaged it up into this thing they call Firefox Hello, which mm-hmm. sounds adorable. Yeah. Um, and so you can use this Firefox Hello feature to, uh, uh, start up a, a video chat with uh, any of your friends and you don't have to rely on uh, one of those nefarious intermediaries like uh, Google or Skype uh, in order to make that work. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. It is awesome. It is cool. Um, and also, the, you know, as we as we said on the show before, I'm, I'm also curious to see how people use the, uh, the data channels on WebRTC because not only can you send audio and video, but you can also send data to people. Um, yep. So you could, do, uh, you could do a fun little file sharing... Um, uh, kind of video party if you wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be cool. That would be yeah. cool. Um, so the the guy that turned me on to uh, to WebRTC, uh, Eric Mill, um, mm-hmm. uh, also just wrote a great blog post about uh, using a hard token. Uh, mm-hmm. So Dave, you and I both have hard tokens uh, for work, right? Yes. Um, so this is like if we want to log into our VPN or whatever, we have to type in our password, but then also have to type in this random set of numbers that shows up on a um, on a kind of a physical device, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in order to, in order to get in. And there's some, uh, if people turn on two factor authentication on like Google, you get like a soft token. Um, mm-hmm. but you can also, for those services that use the soft tokens, you can also use a hard token and I can strongly recommend using a hard token, um, 
for, as, a, as an example, if your phone bricks itself, which has happened mm-hmm. to me, um, mm-hmm. if you have soft tokens on your phone and only on your phone and your phone bricks itself, you are now not able to log into anything. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's always nice to have a hardware backup uh, for that yep. stuff. Anyway, uh, Eric wrote a whole article about how to kind of get started um, if you were not assigned a hard token by your company, uh, how just like a regular person on the street can start using hard tokens. Mm-hmm. Um, we're huge fans of two-factor authentication, so everyone should yep. go check that out. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm uh, like to me, I, I kind of like the. So one of the things I, I went through that article pretty quickly, and it, I guess he's talking about like YubiKey and everything. And I, I think that's great as long as you have access to a USB port. Um, but it, like a YubiKey doesn't help you as much if you're trying to use your phone to enter a one-time password. Where I kind of like right. the soft token for that, or at least having like I, I like how our setup is that I could use a hard token and a soft token. Whereas uh, Google, I think they only let you use one token yep. per account. Yep. Yep. Right. I like having multiple. Like like you said, if you brick your phone, um, I can. I have. I actually have the YubiKey. I have a, a Jamalto, uh, you know, password generator, and I have my soft token. So I'm I'm pretty covered. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see this article about uh, Bitcoin uh, not being quite as anonymous as people would like? Yeah, what what happened there? Yeah, so these uh, researchers over in Europe figured out that uh, for about 1,500 euros in computing power, um, you can basically figure out somebody's IP address on Bitcoin. Ooh. Um, and it doesn't take very long either. Wow. Uh, you, can do it in, you can do it in real time. Um, hmm. So that, I, f- I felt like that would be, there's got to be some caveats to it because I would, I would suspect that if news like that came out, that that would create some kind of earth-shattering, you know, Bitcoin crashing uh, kind of news, but uh, it didn't seem to cause as many waves as I'd expected. So maybe there's, uh, maybe I don't understand it as well as I, hmm. as well as I should. But it does go to show that you know, uh, for people claiming anonymity on a service, um, it's a it's a, an extremely tricky thing to pull off. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, um, especially since it doesn't obviously just apply to Bitcoin; it applies to anything that relies on uh, blockchain. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about uh, surveillance software. Oh, yeah. So uh, Amnesty, a couple weeks ago, released uh, this software called Detect. Um, and uh, can you guess what it does, Dave? It, it detects. Mm-hmm, it sure does. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. It detects uh, surveillance software on your computer. Um, mm. So the idea is that, uh, you know, the folks that Amnesty tries to defend, right, like dissidents in a yep. country can uh, download the software, run it, and it will let you know if you have any uh, surveillance software installed. So uh, write, what it, write what it says on the tin. Um, mm. pretty, pretty handy. Pretty nice. Handy. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what if you have a... Uh, third-tier phone from uh, Asia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you, so uh, this, uh, this news just came in right as we started recording. Um, with uh, this, uh, this is like maybe top five uh, malware names. Uh, this one's called Death Ring. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like, it sounds like a movie from the 80s or something. I was going to say, it sounds like Death a lost John, Jean-Claude yeah. Van Damme movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Death Ring is, uh, is this uh, Trojan... Um, that is apparently uh, you don't even have to install an app, Dave. It just comes pre-installed. Phone comes with Deathring pre-installed, <laughs> um, nice. and it's That's mostly convenient. for, like you say, it's mostly from like third-tier vendors, uh, largely in Asia and Africa. Um, yeah. So like kind of at the low end of the market, um, but. Uh, I think that's just a total accident. There's no reason to think that uh, you couldn't do the same thing in the uh, in the first world. Yeah, but if you could install, but it, let's say your phone doesn't have soft uh, uh, spyware pre-installed, um, hmm. can can you uh, install it yourself though? Oh, I'm sure you could. Yeah, 
like like the Twitter app. <laughs> I was going to say, like the Twitter yeah. app, um, mm-hmm. which just uh, transformed itself into spyware. Yep. Um, Dave, you found this. Why don't you, why don't you tell folks about it? Yeah. So, um, you know, you know how like whenever we're not sending emails to uh, Hilton and to Marriott asking about how wouldn't it be great if we had cancellation fees to increase our experience? I'm sure Twitter was getting all kinds of requests saying that, boy, if you knew what all kind what apps I was running on my phone, that would in- improve my ad experience that you're giving me, and I would really want that. Uh, and so they've they've listened. And they've implemented that in the newest version of, of the Twitter uh, client for your uh, mobile device. So what it's doing is that um, there's an option that's turned on by default to make it easy for you um, that uh, the Twitter app will know all the apps that you have installed on your phone and report that back to Twitter and use that collection um, uh, to, at a minimum, uh, give you more relevant ads uh, as you're using the Twitter app. So my understanding of this was that it's an, it's an inventory of running applications on the phone. So yes. Twitter so Twitter wouldn't be able to do a comprehensive inventory of everything you have installed, but over time they would be able to accumulate one. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I think they're for whatever reason they're they're targeting just the running apps and I don't know whether that's like an accident of like the Android permission system, like that's mm-hmm. all they that's all they're allowed to look at or if it's um Actually, for the purpose of advertising, like I need to know that this guy is running Instagram right now, and then I can target him with the um, thing. It's maybe it's a mix of both, but um, yeah. Again, um, this is this goes back to you know this is my great annoyance with uh, Facebook and why mm-hmm. I departed that community is uh, is the fact that these privacy plans just kind of shift underneath you, and unless you're paying a lot of attention to mm-hmm. how these things are altered, um, it's like playing whack-a-mole, right? Yep. Um, like I thought Twitter and I had an understanding. Um, yep. but uh, they just changed the game on me, um, and I find that annoying. Well, and and also, okay, so it's ads, and and to me, I don't think that's the worst thing that could possibly go wrong. Um, something that's worse would be, um, could a, a government send a letter to Twitter saying that, oh, I want a list of all the apps on this person's phone. And then yep. that way, whenever I have the my catalog of malware that I want to, or, you know, if I want to hack a person's phone, it's like, oh, I know that person has a Dropbox client installed. Um, so you could either hack through that way, or I, by me knowing that that person has a, a Dropbox app installed on the phone, I can go to Dropbox and give them a letter saying, that, oh, I know that this person has a Dropbox account, and I want to see what's what's inside their data. Um, and, and so basically, the Twitter app is, you know, you can go to Twitter uh, or a government can go to Twitter and get a list of all the apps that a person has, and then from there go to each of those app providers and demand the data from those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I suspect also that Twitter is not keeping this information to themselves. That sounds like pretty lucrative information. Um, if I was selling a mobile application and I had enough money, I would be more than happy to give Twitter money to find out who was running my competitor's software, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and that sounds relatively innocuous, um, unless we're talking about like, you know, I've got a big butt biker mama app right on my phone, and maybe I don't want everybody to know about that, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And now suddenly that information is being traded on the open market. Um, no, thank you. No, thank yeah, you. or or the other part of it would be they may not. I, I bet you they would be very much like Google and not sell that information to their uh, to those people. But what they might do is like, Oh, well I can target, 
if you you know you pay for this ad um so hey spider oak i can i can do ads for all the people that are running dropbox mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. you know so they could they could target the advertising based upon the apps that they have installed it's like, oh, you have a Fitbit app installed. Well, let me tell you about the Samsung Watch, and and go that way. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I don't. You know, I I don't know that I have ever, like you say, um, <laughs> like improving the ad experience is, mm-hmm. it's a, it's like it's, <clears throat> this idea of improving the ad experience is like opening a door to an empty room for me. Um, Who's asking for that? Who? Nobody's asking for that. I don't need it. Um, I am utterly indifferent to targeted advertising as far as I know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, unless they're a lot more clever than I think they are. Because um, targeted advertising, um, I mean, it seems like it would almost always be to convince me to go use something that I'm, something else instead of what I'm using now, right? Like mm-hmm. you say, um, you know, convincing me to use Dropbox instead of Spider Oak or something like that. Um, I don't, like I don't need I don't need advertising second guessing the choices I've already made. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just a, what a like very high value for the advertisers I suppose, but very very low value for the user. Yep, yep, yeah. Well, what they ought to do is is like what I really want to have is that if I'm if I'm posting a, a picture of myself holding a product up, I, mm-hmm. I want to have that picture analyzed, um, identify where that product is, and then use my image in in ads with my friends. Yeah, that sounds great. That's what I that want. Sounds real good. Yeah, I wonder if that's Wasn't possible. Feel, I'm, I'm, I am positive that it is. Yes. <laughs> um, what's the name of the company? It's a Ditto Labs. Ditto Labs. Yes. Ditto yep. Labs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, so they will, uh, they will happily uh, and in an automated fashion turn you into a uh, pitchman mm-hmm. uh, for the highest bidder. Yep. Yeah. So, so like, that's uh, like fun. Was it Kraft uh, Food Groups? Mm-hmm. So they, they pay Ditto Labs, and then. They Ditto Labs goes through Tumblr and Instagram, searching for I guess Kraft macaroni and cheese boxes, and um, um, and then aligns that with uh, sports fans or foodies or or whatever um, to really um, make the ad experience better for uh, everybody. And so this is diabolical. Um, uh, I mean, this notion of again, you know, we we joke about man in the middle attacks, which we've been joking about a lot lately, um, but. This idea of kind of altering my experience, like having someone intervene, if I'm talking to my friends on Twitter, say, Mm -hmm. and another company is coming in and putting some additional emphasis or weight on a particular product um, in ways that are not necessarily obvious to me. Um, Mm -hmm. This is like, what it it makes me think of is uh, there's there's an outfit in, I presume in Los Angeles, where they will go into movies and cgi out a particular product and replace it with another oh yeah um, right right so that you you know so that it'd be like whatever doritos in the theater but then when it goes to video it becomes lays potato chips or something right yeah. um yeah and they, they and would it, do that for uh tv shows where like i think it was big bang theory where it was a like pepsi in the united states and then when they do it in japan it's some japanese soft drink mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. right exactly um and uh it's not like it, what bugs me about it is uh, it's not like I feel like that's compromising the artistic artistic vision of Big Bang Theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel what, what bothers me about it is that some dark hand is mediating my experience 
uh, of the rest of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm looking I, uh, with technologies like these floating around, even if they're not doing it, it makes me guess like if a friend of mine is in a photo holding a bag of potato chips, I don't know if that's actually what happened, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, there's now a you know there's now a very good chance that you know maybe somebody's come in and altered it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and that's disturbing, right? This idea of like interfering with what amounts to a, or what should be a direct experience or like a, an experience shared directly with me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that somebody would uh, mess with it is disconcerting. Yeah, it's like like how Stalin would Photoshop out uh, dissidents. Yeah, from yeah, exactly, right. yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. it's it's straight up Orwell. It's just potato chips instead of dissidents, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what we ought to do is is even instead of uh, worrying about it, we ought to just embrace this whole social media thing and just make money from it. You're right, Dave. You're right, Dave. Unfortunately, um, I think we need a larger social media presence, though. Is there a? Can yeah. you think of a way that we can like kind of quickly amplify our social media experience? Yeah, we need we need bots following us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bots, mm-hmm. bots. I gotta we gotta get some bots. How do you how do you buy bots? Oh, probably from I I gotta check in my spam folder, and I could probably I can give you a list. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like I so I saw this article that, uh, and I I I'm like, why would somebody pay money to get? all these followers and, and, you know, is it a self-esteem thing or or what's the deal with it? And I guess for, for some people, it's a matter of like, you know, Kim Kardashian or whatever. Um, you, you want to have a lot of followers because that implies that, um, you know, you are a mover and shaker and that gets you product endorsements. And so I guess there, there are people, um, that, will pay for it to have fake followers and that boosts them up in the ratings and that gets them the sponsorships and then it turns into the self-perpetuating sort of thing that um, it's like a PR thing that it's like, oh, by everybody tweeting about how awesome you are, um, that makes you awesome. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, so actually turning celebrities into bots, basically. Yes, if they're not already, yeah. Yeah. You know, so you know how Stephen Fry does this? Um, no. Stephen Fry, the, the British comedian? He's he's very clever. So he does. I don't know that he does paid endorsements, um, but what he does is he accepts inquiries from charitable organizations, and then has a calendar of on each day which charity he's going to be promoting. And he's very transparent about it, right? He's you know if you are interested in me mentioning your uh, your NGO on Twitter, um, send an email to such and such, and then they, he does whatever vetting he does. And just every day, um, he he'll uh, he'll promote um, you know one good cause or another, um, hmm. which I think is a, which I think is a nice way to use your celebrity, right? Rather than um, you know, uh, what's the word? Whoring yourself out for uh, you know ten thousand dollars a tweet or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, exactly. So that's a, a really a really classy way of of using your influence. I like it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really credible. All right. So how how would we get started? So we, we want to get some bots. Is there instead of like there would have to be a way to do it in an open source way instead of having to like bots as a service? Is there a way we could just mm-hmm. do this using open source tools? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. So uh, so we start. So probably the most popular bot out there right now is uh, is uh, Hubot, right? GitHub's mm-hmm. Hubot. Um, oh. And uh, so the. Problem is, Dave. I don't want to start up a new server. I don't want to configure a server just to be running, you know, this bot software. Um, 
I would want to, I wish there was a, like a, a, like a pre-canned, like a hosted, uh, something that could, uh, that could host all these bots. Cause we're going to have, you know, thousands of them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You want to be able to scale it up on demand too, for when mm -hmm. you want to yeah. start trending. Right. Yeah, yep. exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, OpenShift, Dave. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I wonder if you that could put like Ubod on OpenShift. I am I am positive of it because I'm looking at a link right now. It says Hitchhiker's Guide to Tweetbots, hosting yep. a Qbot on OpenShift. Done. 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 Yeah. All right, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Yep. And maybe maybe we'll this would be a way for us to increase the advertising rates for uh Sean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Guide. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's right. We're saying, see, Sean, we're delivering value. We are improving your advertising experience. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, for everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. So social media is broken. Phones are broken. Uh, Bitcoin's broken. Video conferencing is broken. Um, I do have some good news, Dave. Yeah. So, on uh, January fourteenth in yeah. Alexandria, uh, the there's going to be a DevOps meetup. Yeah. Which normally we wouldn't mention, but the hosts of this DevOps meetup are are interesting to me. It's uh, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. So, so USPTO, now with their new Google-enabled leadership, um, have apparently turned, uh, turned on to DevOps. And uh, so, yeah, so I think it's really cool to see, uh, to see the Patent and Trademark Office, you know, what I think can be charitably described as a relatively conservative organization, um, looking into uh, kind of DevOps methodology. And they've even invited uh, the good guys from Etsy to come in and talk about how they run their shop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's yeah. Super cool. Well, the Patent and Trademark Office, you would think that it would be like kind of boring that it's like a bunch of lawyers looking at pieces of paper and reviewing stuff under a lamp and things. And, mm -hmm. and but but um, from talking to those guys, it, it's really interesting because they, they got to deal with, um, you know, looking at things like, say, prior art of, of like somebody's uh, having some sort of, uh, you know, solar cell or something that they're trying to get a patent on. They have like uh, well over a hundred years worth of patent applications that they have to go through um, uh, to make sure that it hasn't been uh, patented before. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really interesting of of like you know how do you keep track of all that stuff? How do you you know do scans across it and everything? So it's pretty neat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That is interesting. Yep. Neat. Uh, so Dave, this new this new Red Hat security site yep. came up. Yep. Um, which I'm really happy about. I mean, I, we had some security kind of areas of the, after the website redesign, um, I guess it was about a year ago that redesign mm -hmm. came up. Um, we had like some pockets of security information on the site, but nothing kind of devoted to kind of practical security advice. Um, and so we launched this new called microsite in the business called a microsite. Yep. Yep. Um, it, uh, it's really useful. Um, and it even says right there on the front page, Stig and SCAP. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that was, uh, so that was done by the, the public sector uh, team, and namely it was uh, technically led by the, we have a uh, SA team uh, called the Security Subject Matter Experts, led by Robin Price. And so that was, that was pretty cool that uh, he was working with Sean Wells, um, and they, they were the subject matter experts to help uh, put together a lot of the content. So there's like some cool videos, like a, a minute and a half video on SBIRT, a minute and a half video on SCAP. Uh, and Stig, so it's it's really cool. No, that's great. That's really yep. cool. It's good Excellent. work. Good work um, by them. Mm -hmm. And 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 I couldn't help but notice there was a mention of the Dave and Gunner show on that side, Dave. 
Yeah, and that's why I, I yeah, that that was a, a great thing too. That was one of my favorite parts of that site. <laughs> Again, definitely improved my advertising experience. Yes, yes, yes. Our, that's our advertising dollars um, <laughs> at work. Yeah. So it grieves me to say it, Dave, but yes. uh, Paul Brubacker, um, who's uh, over at VMware, mm-hmm. um, actually wrote a an excellent article on uh, IT procurement in the federal government. And if anybody has the patience to listen to the show and listen to us prattle on about, you know, USPTO doing DevOps, um, you are going to be interested in this, in this article. It was a really nice kind of something you don't see very often, especially in our industry literature, which is like a 20 year view of how mm-hmm. far we've come um, in federal IT. Um, he talks about the battle days before the Klinger Cohen Act when uh, it was like the Wild West in IT procurement, like nobody was in charge, it wasn't specially budgeted for, there were no like special controls on security and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about the laws that we've passed to try and get that under control, and then he talks about the miserable failure uh, we've had implementing those laws um, mm-hmm. and how they've kind of devolved into, you know, these like rubber stamp kind of compliance efforts um, rather than, you know, a, a real critical approach um, to uh, to IT architecture, IT acquisition, things like that. Um, anyway, I thought the article was wonderful, um, so wonderful that I, I figured it was worth a mention on the show. Um, I don't know, Dave, you've been working with the federal government for quite some time. Have you seen, do you feel like things are the same as when you started or are they getting better, getting worse? Do you have, a, do you have an impression? Yeah, well, from an open source perspective, it it's gone from people being skeptical or wondering if the whole thing's going to take off or, you know, I, I remember when I started at Red Hat almost eight years ago of, you know, a lot of the discussions were around defending why open source is secure and all that, where now that conversation has changed to it being the default. And now, now people are doing development. Um, just, um, uh, you know, like, like, uh, I'm sure the DevOps folks at the USPTO are, are going to talk a lot about doing DevOps with open source tools. So, um, I think that part is cool. Um, but, Procurement wise, I don't know if things have, are better or worse. What What do you think? Um, I'm sure you know. It's I, the tricky thing with the, the tricky thing with having a conversation like this is you know the federal government is this sprawling uh, behemoth. Uh, you might even call it a leviathan. Um, you know, it's got its tentacles into everything, and so saying that the federal government writ large is kind of one way or another, I think is tricky. Um, you've got really great pockets of, you know, really smart procurements happening and like a really smart acquisition approaches happening. And then you've got other pockets which are, you know, totally retrograde. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's kind of, uh, kind of neither here nor there. I think, uh, I think what's good is that there is a public conversation going on about procurement and acquisition and kind of everybody knows that it's broken. Um, you saw the U.S. Digital Service uh, and the GSA and the 18F, and those are all at heart kind of new approaches or people are trying new things um, in order to kind of get around a lot of these problems. And so I think that that, that kind of work is, is productive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've got the, uh, you've got the checklists um, that the, uh, that OMB put out, um, talking about, you know, what are the smart ways to use open source and the smart ways to, you know, start doing more agile procurements and things like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's all for the good. Um, but, uh, but man, it is, it is broken. It's, it's broken. <laughs> it's, yep. it's pretty bad. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know if you saw forge.mil went down. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Weeks ago. Yep. And not, yeah. just, not just down for like a couple minutes. Like it went down for like a number of days from what I understand. Um, it went down for a while. 
Yeah, and the funny thing is when I saw that, it it was less about Forge.mil being down to it's like did people notice and people questioning like why are we using Forge.mil because it's too much of a walled garden and yeah 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 that's you know that's been a so Forge.mil is is the kind of inside the firewall uh, code sharing space in the DoD and uh, it's been it's. Some people like it, I suppose. Um, I know a lot of kind of open source advocates, especially on like the mill OSS lists, uh, the military open source working group lists. Um, they're kind of down on forge.mill because it is like a walled garden, right? And they say like, well, if you're gonna release the code, you ought to just release the code to GitHub or, or you know, wherever else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it, it, I, I think it's interesting that, that there aren't many, I don't feel like there are many organizations today which, given the option, would elect to hide the the source code for, for the work that they're doing. Um, I think if you're in a regulated industry, maybe, or like in government, I think it's different. But I think by default, or at least it, seems, it certainly seems to me, being the open source guy, um, it seems like a lot of companies will just put their code up by default, right? They use it as mm-hmm. like a recruiting effort. Um, mm-hmm. They use it, uh, you know, they use it to try and like relieve technical debt. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it seems really specific to, again, like regulated industries and government, this idea that like we need a, we need a code repository in-house because um, yeah. all this stuff is secret somehow. Um, anyway, and then, you know, and then of course your, your system goes down and now none of the developers can get at their source code. So. Well, and also the, with, I think, Forge.mil at the time was like, when it came out, was like awesome and revolutionary. And hey, we're it, it, the military is admitting that open source is good and let's let's do that. And it was like a step in the right direction. Um, but at the time, if it probably would have never happened if it was totally public and totally out there, because I don't think that's the government right. was ready for it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like a lot of uh, like a lot of government activity. I think it 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 just reeks of like a half measure. Um, yeah. and so it's kind of half as effective as it could have been. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So speaking of DevOps. Yeah. So speaking of DevOps, I, uh, I started listening to, and this is kind of embarrassing, right? Cause I feel like an old man. Cause I'm like just coming up on for, a, you know, for a bunch of reasons, I'm, um, doing a bunch of DevOps kind of industry research, whatever. Um, probably because I'm giving a presentation on it on Monday, but, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, um, uh, I ran into this podcast, uh, that's, uh, done by the, uh, a number of kind of luminaries in the DevOps space. What's, what's interesting about DevOps as a movement is that it is not tied to, uh, a particular tool. Um, and it's not even tied to a particular approach, really. It's really personality driven. Um, hmm. so people talk, people don't talk about like, oh, I'm using the pattern X, Y, Z, or I'm using tool X, Y, Z. Um, they'll refer to, uh, you know, Botchkalupi on Twitter, right. Or they'll talk about Deming, um, the, uh, uh the guy who revolutionized the Japanese industry in the, in the 1940s. Um, they, they'll, they'll refer to a way of thinking, um, and mm-hmm. attach it to a particular personality, um, which mm. is really interesting. And so. Um, anyway, this DevOps Cafe is a podcast with a lot of these personalities on it, right? Um, and so I'll include links to the but Two of my favorite episodes are with um, the very funny uh, Matt Cote uh, and Jay Lyman. Both of them are analysts at 451 um, and big kind of like DevOps guys. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Adrian Cocroft, um, who's the 
who was the architect over at Netflix, um, mm-hmm. and is now with uh, Battery Ventures. They talked about how they grew into DevOps as a movement, um, kind of you know give nice little overviews of how the industry is working and kind of what's coming up in the future. Anyway, really smart guys, uh, really great interviews. Um, I highly recommend subscribing to this podcast. It was great. Mm. Nice. Nice. But this podcast is all about things that are broken, so we need to move away from that. Um, Oh, yeah. 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 So what else is broken? Uh, HTTPS is broken. Okay. Okay. How's that broken? Uh, Well, so it may be broken for technical reasons, uh, which which it almost certainly is. Um, But uh, Bruce Schneier linked to this this analysis of SSL as an economic failure. Hmm. which I thought was pretty interesting, right? So um, let me just read you a little little snippet of it here. It says, uh, the security of the entire ecosystem suffers if any of the hundreds of of certification authorities are compromised, meaning they have like weakest links. Um, Browsers are unable to revoke trust in major certificate authorities, right? Because they're like too big to fail. Um, And uh, CAs manage to conceal security incidents, um, which is like an information asymmetry problem. And ultimately customers and end users bear the liability uh, and damages of security incidents, right? Which means there's like negative externalities. Anyway, like a really smart analysis of like kind of how the whole system is broken. Um, And it's not, you know, it's not some bad decision made in a standard somewhere. It's how the whole ecosystem is uh, kind of conspiring against making um, HTTPS as useful as it could be. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I didn't know about this until a couple of years ago. But um, it's amazing how much we blindly trust the default CAs that are inside your web browser. Like I, I don't know if you ever like opened it up and saw all the CAs that are in there. Um, some of them are for foreign governments, and yeah. so if all they need to do is they could generate a Google.com or Gmail, you know, um, certificate, uh, and if they can hack your DNS, then you know they, they could. Uh, you know, they could uh, do a man in the middle on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly mm-hmm. right. Um, so this, yeah, it, I, I'll be honest, I, I, the article is really interesting, uh, but I find if I think about the insecurity of uh, the HTTPS regime, um, I, I get a little, I get a little twitchy. Uh, I get a, I get a little anxious. <laughs> it's, it's, mm-hmm. kinda, it's pretty alarming. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, what else is broken? Oh, maker culture, Dave. Yeah, what's broken there? I thought the maker culture is awesome. Uh, so maker culture is awesome. Um, yeah. And so the so and especially over the last few years, uh, certainly the O'Reilly Media Empire has gone a long way towards uh, promoting maker culture as something good and virtuous, right? Yes. Um, you know, you look on especially you look on Boing Boing, like Mark Fraudenfelder, whatever his name is. Um, he's constantly talking about the kind of these maker projects, um, and he actually talks very eloquently about how important it is for us to be able to. Uh, fix, repair, and improve the things, the the tools that we rely on in our lives, um, mm-hmm. which is something that's really close to my heart. I know it's close to Lauren's heart, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, this idea that you should be able to, um, you should be able to ex- again exert some control over the over the tools that you rely on. Um, I think it's it's good for a thousand reasons. Um, I think it's also taken to an extreme. It it uh, it starts getting a little bit toxic, right? And so this is um. Uh, a woman whose uh, newsletter I subscribe to, and I'll link to it in the show notes. She writes really eloquently about how maker culture has turned into this kind of chauvinism of like, 
um, oh, well, if you're not making anything, then you're obviously not worthwhile um, mm -hmm, as a human mm -hmm. being or, you know, in your job, right? Um, so unless you're out in a garage building an engine or unless you're out writing code, uh, whatever it is you do is probably irrelevant. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, and this kind of us versus them mentality, right, is always, uh, always a little dangerous. Um, but like I say, she's really, it's a really well-articulated argument. I, I like this quote in particular. It says, uh, Instead of calling myself a maker, I'm proud to stand with the caregivers, the educators, those that analyze and characterize and critique, everyone who fixes things, and all the other people who do valuable work with and for others that doesn't result in something that you can put in a box and sell. Hmm. And what I liked about that is is that, that bit at the end about putting them in a box and sell, because we talk about maker culture as almost being like a counterculture thing, right? Like, I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm against this big corporate stuff and sealed boxes and I want to be able to yeah. get in there with my hands and I'm, you know, I'm a rugged individual. Um, but ultimately it becomes so tied to materialism. Oh that yeah. It just become, it becomes like a different expression of, uh, you know, of like, of like gross capitalism. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the 19 year old Marxist in me was really, that really appealed <laughs> to me. Um, well, I, I think that, well, a couple of things, I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is it, um, yeah, it's, and you could lump Kickstarter in with all that too, of, of, you know, putting stuff in a box and selling it and everything. Um, but I also think that the, it's not, you're a maker or you're not a maker. Um, you could be an educator that uses making to, um, to educate and, and make things concrete and cool and, and to inspire, uh, people. And, and, but, but I also agree with you that people will go from, instead of, it's like, oh, well, I'm, I'll make it myself. So I'm not going to be wrapped up in the, 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 the materialism uh, of buying uh, some gadget and everything. I'll make it myself. But then all of a sudden you get caught up in the materialism of, of buying the coolest soldering gun or, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, wh whichever is the, so instead of, by you know focusing on the the hottest um uh iphone you're focusing on the hottest tools to build an iphone and and you're mm -hmm. still caught up in the materialism um and and which i think again is it's a trap um mm -hmm. but yeah yeah and and you you, you don't want to fall into that but there but i also think too that for the um the other thing with with makers is that it helps you from a um uh self-reliance standpoint of, of you know one of the things that i i do with lauren is uh you know she knows for i don't know the past five years she knows how to change an air filter in a car um mm -hmm. and and it's you know it's the kind of thing that you know it it i i want her especially you know how it is with the stereotype of the woman going to the car repair shop and getting taken advantage of for, you know, buying like an air filter that's outrageously expensive and you pay for the installation for it. And you, before you know it, you spend a hundred dollars for parts and labor to, to put in an air filter. that's like 10 bucks. Um, right, right. so I, I want to give Lauren that confidence to, it's not like she's making things, but she's not afraid to open the hood of a car and, and, you know, do some things with it and, or, you know, check the air pressure and, in, in, in the tires of a car and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, well, and, and as you say, there's a, there's a kind of self-satisfaction that comes with that, which is really healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, this idea of like, you know, I'm, 
again, um, it's about control and independence and, and the rest of it. I, I, I can get down with that. I think uh, there's a, a, another thing I like about the passage that I, that I read was uh, she talks about the value of, yes, educators, and then also those that analyze and characterize and critique, right? Um, because without that activity, there's no culture, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's yep. no, it's, uh, uh, I think that, you know, analysis and critique uh, do in fact enrich our lives, right? And I think if you think about making as being something important, um, and I think making in contrast to like a passive recipient of things or also just a, a, a nihilistic criticism of things, right? Yep. Um, I, you know, I think about like the, the blog posts that I write, um, the presentations that I do. I think about that as a kind of making and I like to think that I that I bring the same kind of care and attention to that as I would, you know, whatever rebuilding an engine, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It, because it, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a task that requires skill and concentration and practice. Um, and I have the, I get the same kind of pride out of like an excellent presentation or a good blog post as I do, um, you know, whatever, like soldering Christmas lights. Um, yes. and so I think that, there is a, especially for guys like us who are, you know, we're knowledge workers, um, you know, working in IT, um, the idea that our work is somehow intangible, um, I think we kind of naturally uh, are, get a little insecure about it, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. it's not quote unquote real work. Um, mm-hmm. When in fact it's just as if not, you know, in some cases more demanding um, than actual like elbow grease. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Yep, interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. So everyone, anyway, the, everyone should go. Uh, everyone should go read the essay because uh, yeah. it was outstanding. And I, I think too that it's you. I, it also brings out the need to have a balance as well. Like you can't have mm-hmm. everybody that's a maker or everybody that's a movie critic. Um, you know, if everybody's a movie critic, nobody would be making movies. Um, and if <laughs> and if everybody would be making movies, you wouldn't have somebody to tell you which ones stunk and which ones to avoid and and so mm-hmm. you know it, i think having a balance for all of that and, and you know i look at it too it's like uh you know wh- whether it's walking dead or whatever and you know it's like that sort of apocalyptic situation like you you need a doctor you need um you know eat the, oh how do how do you plant food um you know things like that um whereas for me it's like oh who needs to rebuild a Linux kernel when all the power goes out, you know, and it's like, uh, man, and, and so yeah. what am I going to be doing? You know? Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. yeah. I, I know. I think about that a lot too. Um, the, uh, like exactly how useless I'm going to be, um, after the uh, power grid collapses. <laughs> yeah. That's, I could do, a, I could do a presentation. It's, oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, all right. So, or, okay. So our sense of self-worth is broken. That's what, that, yep. that, that's the takeaway from that. Um, so let's end on that. Yeah. Let's end on that. <laughs> <laughs> let's end on a high note. Yeah. Yeah. So Dave, if, uh, if folks want to, uh, to learn more about their own, their own self-worth, um, if they, uh, if they, if they would like a link to the, uh, that Amnesty International Detect tool, um, yes. uh, if they want to uh, learn more about that USPTO DevOps meeting, uh, where, which, which website should they go? Yeah, they want to go to uh, dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Dave. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.